episode 25 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. How's it going, Justin? Hey, Jason. Yep, going good. How about you? Good, good. I, I noticed that our intro is is very uh, sort of formal. I was I was listening to I think Stack Overflow, and half the times they even forget to do the intro. Yeah. <laughs> I just noticed that there's sort of like, oh yeah, who are we talking to? Where are we? I guess it doesn't matter. But I like your intros. I think you do a good job. Well, a lot of the time it just depends on the mood I'm in. If I've if I've been drinking the night before, then I'll just do a simple one like that one I just did. Failing right. that, I might do something a little bit more flowery and interesting. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh let's see uh, i guess let's start off i guess we normally recently we've been starting off with the tweet miner update let's let's hear the uh let's hear the update um well the main thing about tweet miner this week the main uh take home for me is that bad support and bad support journeys will cost you sales right because I started the Get Satisfaction Forum, and I have a link on the top of TweetMiner that says Get Support. So people can click into that, and it just sort of dumps them in the middle of the Get Satisfaction Forum. Okay. And they can they can post up a support request. But then also, I have sort of priority report. If you go through the sign-up page and you actually become a paying customer, it says, send me an email you know, for, right. for direct support. So I had the one customer who didn't notice the, the send me an email, mm-hmm. and he put his support request on the Get Satisfaction. And he put it probably like five days ago or something, maybe six days ago. And I, di- I didn't get back because I just didn't get a chance to look into the Get Satisfaction forum. Right. And finally, when I got back to him, um, I, the, his issue was he wanted to be able to plug in his um, public Google RSS into TweetMiner. And I didn't think that it was possible. So I sort of said that. And he said, right, well, you, you know, because of this bad support and the fact you don't seem like you're interested in following it up, I'm just going to cancel my account. Right. Um, but I, and I was sort of like, oh God, I wish you'd seen the fact that he could email me and no, I mean, you know, I'm really happy to support it. Like I just want the customers to be happy, but he just didn't, he just didn't get that because I had bad journeys. So a a couple of points, I mean, for a start, it leaves a kind of bad taste on the support forum. So I had to really work at making him turn around and say, okay, thanks a lot. Because basically what I did was I, I refunded him all of his payments and um, just said, you know, look, I'm really sorry that, that I didn't get back to you just because I didn't see it. Right, right. And, um, Nikon, you're going to say something? No, so how did that work out? So did it change anything? Well, yeah, he basically, the, the, there's this sort of support thread now where he's, he's kind of grumpy. But then at the end of it, he says, oh, okay, thanks a lot. You really didn't have to do that. Thanks, you know, that was good customer service. Um, right. And he's moved off to, he's moved off to another he basically moved to Hootsuite. He said he was going to move to there instead because they're right. they're free for the moment. So, right, right. Um, but th- some other things that I changed is the get support link. Rather than just dump them anywhere in this get satisfaction, now I've made this special page that says there. You know, you can contact me by email or you can leave a message here. Um, right. If you leave a message here, I'll deal with it in a couple of days. If you contact me by email, I will get directly to you. And I, I'm also going to basically make a point of checking into that get a satisfaction forum every couple of days because essentially if that forum's there and I've, i'm making that promise to the users it's ridiculous for me to not look in for five or six days do you have some kind of is that like an rss feed or something so you can keep an eye on it without having to go and log in and check yeah you can get the you can get emails sent to you but i turned it off because they were bugging me 
yeah. Well, what about just like a daily digest? I, I, I think they probably do have those options. Yeah, I think they probably do. That would probably that would make it reasonable. You know, I think with a lot of stuff, if you're if you're if you get back to people within 24 hours for non-critical web apps, I think that's fairly reasonable. Yeah. Um, I, unless unless they have like a premium account, and account they're paying for some kind of premium support. I mean, get for people to get back to you quicker than 24 hours is expecting quite a lot. Yeah. You know, especially if they're only paying like five or ten dollars a month. <laughs> you know. Yep. So. Uh, but that's that sounds reasonable. Yeah, well, I, I the fact that you're working hard to make people happy, even if the fact, even if you may be losing losing those particular customers, is it's probably a re, will reflect well on you and uh, Tweetminer, I would imagine. Well, it's it's not nice to lose paying customers, that's for sure. No. But it's not. also not nice to have negative. The prop. I mean, the 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 good thing and the bad thing about the, about something like Get Satisfaction. Is you have the positive feedback, but you also have the negative feedback. Yeah. So you have to deal with the negative feedback, and sometimes people literally—I mean, not not in this case, but there was another case on the Get Satisfaction where someone was just nuts. I mean, they're just saying really horrible things, and it's clearly because they're just insane. Yeah, there's always going to be that one or two. There's one or two people who are who just are nasty people who or go who go over the top, and they say things they would never say in yeah. your face. Because if they did, if those are the kind of things in your face, they'd probably get the crap beaten out of them most of the right. time. You know, so they don't say it. So, but then they get online and they and they act like complete, you know, jerk offs. And uh, it's unfortunate. It, it, it always pollutes uh, forum discussions and everything else. But that's just I, the reality of the world, I guess. But the fact that you're working hard to make the user experience better. Well, well, one thing obviously what this did is it it forced you to make a change in your support um, uh, journey UI. So yeah, so that. They understand, you know, what the communication protocol is going to be. Yeah. Um, so that's that's always important. But I, I, a lot of change always comes, uh, you know, as a result of pain, <laughs> some kind of pain. So oh, you know, it's going to be a little pain. Then you make it, and then you make some changes, and then, you know, not so much pain. Um, well, the very fact of having customers bugging you about the same thing is kind of irritating. So you need to think about the right way to stop them bugging you about that. So that that's happened consistently with this with the Tweetminer project, and essentially, I think that's what you call emergent design, where you know I'm not making the decisions about what it's what the functionality is going to be. It's really because people are saying, "Oh God, why doesn't it do this? Oh God, why does it do this?" You know. Right. <laughs> so when they consistently say that, it's irritating, and it kind of makes you. Th it's it's like a little grain of sand in a in an oyster. <laughs> Well, it's what we talked about last week of way of prioritizing your to-do list of either features yeah. or, or or bug fixes, which is that the most pain for the most people, uh, whatever the the multiply multiply those two values, right? So if, if people's pain can be ranked one in ten, and multiply that or one in five maybe, and you multiply that value by the percentage of people that seem to be responding to it, the highest values is what you attack first, yep. which is exactly saying the things that you keep hearing about that, you know, because the things that annoy people are the things that they're going, the most are the things that they're going to complain about loudly. And if you get a lot of those repeats, it's sort of the same thing. But yeah, you got to knock that crap out. I had the, I had a support problem this weekend for Prezo. You know, obviously I had, I've, I sort of ceased development in Prezo over, I don't know, a year and a half ago. Yeah. But a lot of people, I have like 37,000 registered users. I don't know how many people are active or whatever, but the 
it, I have a dedicated – the service is running a dedicated server at Media Temple. And right. all of a sudden, I got a, a, just a, a ton of emails complaining that they couldn't log in or couldn't register or whatever. And so I went and investigated it, and it turned out – it was really strange. I got on the tech support, and it turns out that the user account that – for the database – was the same user account for um, that I, originally was the same user account for my login for the Plesk, which is like a web control panel for the dedicated server, kind of like cPanel or Virtuoso, or, or what are some of the other ones? But um, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. The, the web control panel. So, and the email I got back, they said, well, you know, because of security reasons, you have to, you, you need to go in and change your password. I'm like, okay, I'm not sure exactly what that has to do with, with the database connectivity not working. So I changed, so I went and changed that, and then I got on with tech, it still didn't fix it, I went on tech support, and it turned out that somehow they, I don't know what Media Temple did, but they seemed to have changed the user name and user password for my database, even though it's a dedicated server, because all the, my scripts, my config scripts that have all this stuff in it didn't work anymore. So I had to go and you know there's so a new. So they they changed your database username and password just randomly. They they I had to have because my connectivity didn't work and the username and password that I was using didn't work anymore and I haven't touched that code in months, <laughs> no. And all of a sudden when I went and I updated the config file with this new username and and password that I set up for the database, it worked again. And 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 their user support, their tech support's kind of like well I don't know we, we that's not something we would do. And I'm like well somebody did it. <laughs> You know, and it sounds like you guys, if you're telling me I have to go in and change my Plesk username and password, and it turns out that the username and password of Plesk defaulted to be the same sort of root or admin password for the database. That sounds, so you're saying it's a dedicated server? Yep. Yep, it's not like a shared account or something. It's a dedicated server. I hope you don't mind me saying, but that sounds a lot like it's been hacked. Remember we were having, I don't know whether we were talking about this on air, but I was saying that whenever I've had dedicated servers... That, that aren't that basically aren't managed and people aren't continually patching them there will be a point be it three months six months when it gets hacked there's just mm. end of story and it sounds like that server hasn't been patched and upgraded and I reckon there's there's a hack you may you may want to have a look into the security implications of that yeah I will I will take a look at that it was really strange um so well I got it up so I had to deal with all those users. a lot of people were kind of you know, obviously anxious and frustrated because they wanted to get to their presentations and they couldn't. But um, how many people use it a day? I don't know. I don't even have a. I've never even written a query to to test or check. Do you, Do you have the data available? I'm sure I could. Just because could it's it seems like um, okay. Couple couple of points on on the whole Brizo thing. I mean, what you know? What do you think about just putting something out there and totally? I mean, do you, ha do you have a thing on the site saying this is not supported? No. But it's free, uh, you know, I guess. So that's... But still, I mean, just, just from the... From the I mean, it's supported in the sense that I do support it. If people, I, it's, development has ceased, but when people uh, have problems and they email me, I fix them. If they can't, oh, like sometimes people don't get the validation email, it gets caught in their spam filter, and I manually validate their account or, or whatever. I wonder why, why Google wouldn't buy that. Just buy the domain and point it to their one. Hmm, I don't know. Well, you know, we went through that whole thing yeah, back. Yeah. It was two and a half years ago. The whole Google, Rezo thing. Um, so anyway, that was uh, that was kind of interesting. So I, I, I got some. Uh, I got some. Well, first, 
before we get into a variety of topics, there's a whole bunch of interesting topics I'd like to talk about. Okay. Um, one is what's the latest on the uh, on the TweetMiner user count? Well, you saw you saw the Hacker News thread. Someone posted that basically TweetMiner was making all of their stats open, and then and then it was on ended up on Hacker News. Right. Did you see that? Yes, I did. There was a, a lot of discussion about it. That was good. Well, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, so some people were just the the first thoughts were, you know, why the hell would you do that? You know, what what what's what's the benefit? You know, the benefit of that? That's just stupid. And then, as people sort of tease it out, they realize there are some benefits. Not least of which, you know, three angel investors <laughs> contacted me as a result. Yeah, actually, I thought when I re- my my recollection of reading was the first few were like, "Hey, that's really neat." Right. You know, the first handful were like that. That was really kind of cool, and they were kind of analyzing, you know, your your stats, uh, commenting on the stats in particular. And then one guy was like, "I don't know, call me old fashioned, or call me maybe I'm just yeah. old, but I don't get it." And then another guy came, and he had a very thoughtful response to that, and he said, "I'll tell you exactly why. Here are three or four really good reasons why, and it's exactly what we've done, and it's paid off in a lot of ways you wouldn't expect." And that sort of um, that sort of ended that discussion because it was such a, a, a well thought out set of reasons. Okay. But uh, yeah, I guess you must have got some traffic from that, huh? Yeah, I mean a little bit of traffic. I mean, it, it didn't take the tweet. The funny thing is, when when it gets onto Hacker News like that, none of those people sign up to TweetMiner. Yeah, they're, they, they're like the they're like the equivalent of like the TechCrunch bump. Yeah. Right. You get written up at TechCrunch. It's meaningless. It doesn't affect. Doesn't affect your business business at all all it does is crash your server like where whereas um you know someone posts something on twitterreview.com about this new client and then that generates it doesn't generate as as many hits but it generates way more signups obviously yeah because people on hacker news are, are your fellow sort of founders and coders so they're all building their own stuff they're not like software users unless they're using development tools yeah i think i mean obviously people use software but I think these people are more focused on writing software. So they're looking at your business or your software from that perspective. I mean, at the moment, there are um, – well, the, the time of year is, is a funny time of year. So I think that it could be doing better if we were doing – if we were in like January or February. It's not that it's doing badly, but just the basic stats. Um, right. I think that Thanksgiving and coming up to Christmas and all that sort of stuff and also on weekends – it goes up and down. I mean, um, looking at the stats here, on it, uh, the first recorded sales uh, started se- uh, 17th of October. So in October, from 17th to the end of that month, it had 15 transactions, okay. uh, grossing $315. Okay. Then in November, it had 45 transactions, uh, grossing 1100 And now in December, we're six days into December, and we've had 13 transactions, grossing $225. But if you consider that back to October, it, like we had 17 till the end of the month with 15 transactions. So I think it's it's still way better than when it first started. That uh, sounds great. I mean, uh, what's the, if you prorate it, so six days, six 13 transactions. Six days, 225. So if, uh, 13, so five, so and if 65, if, it, if, if we prorated it for the rest of the month, we assumed that the rate was cons- growth was consistent through December. And assuming there are no holidays, you'd expect around 60, 65. Transactions. Yeah, uh, actually. Right. So, yeah, so six. So, so thirty days in a month. Good six maths. days. <laughs> What's that? Good maths. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, uh, that's good. 
That it, sounds great. So basically, if if things go according to the way they've done in the last six days, there should be 1,350 by the end of December. Revenue. Total users? No, no, uh, revenue. Um, oh, 200, revenue. 225 times six. Okay. For the month. For the month, in theory. But I've got a feeling it may just be... Oh, it's going to drop off. You can just you yeah. can almost write off at least a quarter of the month. Because of, yeah, exactly, because of, of Christmas. So if if it if it goes over a thousand, it will be very very lucky, I think. Yeah, I would I would I would just assume that from like the twentieth to the thirtieth is just dead. Right. Anyway, yeah. People aren't even logging into the computer. This is the kind of things when you send emails, you know, people aren't even respond. <laughs> you know, everybody is traveling or Christmas shopping or going to Christmas parties or uh, that kind of stuff. No, nobody's going to be. Once it hits around the twentieth or twenty first, twenty second, people are not going to respond to anything. It's absolutely this is absolutely critical. So, and, and that includes signing up for new uh, buying software. <laughs> hey, I've got I've got one interesting story for you. Just that, okay. just because it popped into my email box right now. So, um, a customer wanted to transfer that they they were on the original five dollar a month plan. Okay. And they basically wanted to transfer um, from one PayPal account from their personal PayPal account to their business PayPal account. I've okay. actually now removed the five dollar a month plan. So I said okay. I sent her back an email saying. Okay, I've I've cancelled your subscription. You can re-sign up if you want. And she sent me one saying, "Oh no, you don't do the five dollar plan. I'm confused." So I was, you know, to basically saying, "Well, you don't have the same deal. I've, I'm going to have to pay like the ten bucks a month now." So I sent her back an email basically saying, "Well, um, I'm really sorry about that, but I just can't financially move forward on the five dollar a month plan as it was." Um, but there's a service called Hootsuite that you might like to check out, which is um, a free website. And has some similar functionality to Tweetminer. Maybe you'd like to go with them. And she's just sent me back an email saying, "No, no, no, no. I really love Tweetminer. I'm signing up to the ten dollar plan <laughs> and the paper." Well, that's a wow. You know, because that's that's a very generous response from you. <laughs> and it, I know I've done that to people who, who, when they were talking about Prezo, and they said, "Oh, I want to be able to do this and that." And I'm clearly not moving forward the development of Prezo at this point. And I said, well, you know, you can try Slide Rocket or you can try Google, um, present Google's presentation, Google Docs. You know, that's fine. But you're actually charging. So you're saying, hey, go use this free one. <laughs> that's awesome, though, that, they, that it actually probably worked in your benefit, right? Because it's not like you're trying to uh, nickel and dimer. You're just saying, well, that's, that's our new plan. That's the way new structure set up. But hey, if you want to use it, it's a good free one if you, if, if, if you can't afford it. Great. Yeah, it is nice, and I'm really glad that she she decided to sign up with it. Oh, I mean, great. I think that's the best policy. The best policy is to be as generous as possible and to just sort of say, look, there's lots of different companies out there. There's lots of different people. People like different things. So, uh, you know, I want to give you the best possible customer service, and perhaps that's saying use use a competitor. You, you hear people say that, and I, I, I you know, I've, I've read, I've definitely read articles where. Um, you hear people advocating that it's a, but it's a hard thing to actually do just like it's a hard thing to be radically transparent these are hard things to do when you actually come down to doing them. to write an email and say hey instead of paying me ten dollars a month which you know, 120 dollars a year you could actually go use this other free service that you might like just as well in which case you're saying here take 120 bucks <laughs> i mean they're, <laughs> they're not going to be free for all time though are they i mean hootsuite is they want to build a business they've got 10 They've got 10 guys working on that thing. Speaking of, of, um, of 
customers and pay is paying it. What about pay? I, I emailed you some stuff about uh, using the PayPal API, some code that I'd written. Yeah. We're talking about you were going to integrate to the was it the PayPal Pro or something? Okay. It wasn't TweetMiner. It was for another client, and I, I did it, and it was really really useful. Um, the code that you sent over. Good. Um, so it, and it's okay. it's also really easy. Basically, it was to do with reference transactions. So right. a, a client of mine, what they wanted to do is. Um, it's basically a lead generation site. They don't know how many leads they're going to be getting for the customers who sign up to their site. So okay. what happens is the customer will sign up, then they ding them for a dollar, right? Okay. Which is a very low amount. And uh, PayPal returns you a transaction ID. From that right. point forward with PayPal Pro, you can create what's called a reference transaction. So you right. just send the ID along with the amount and internally in PayPal, it will copy all of the information and it will basically verify. So what this means is it means that you don't need to keep track of the customer's uh, credit card number and all that stuff, which requires, you know, a lot of legal, <laughs> a lot of legal wrangling for your website to be able to hold credit card numbers. And you, right. you can then bill for different amounts via your site. So you hold on to a reference he says the reference transaction. Every single time you do a transaction via PayPal Pro, they'll send you back a transaction ID. From that point forward, you can do a new transaction for any amount up to $10,000. And they will send you back a new transaction ID, and then the next time you use that for the reference. I see. I see. That's so th cool. So that could, for example, that could be useful for a local bacon because you know, you wouldn't need to store people's credit card numbers. It may, may make them feel safer. So all you're doing for the first time is just dinging them one buck. Yeah, because right now we don't hold on to the credit card information. But, you know, if, if you want to buy more credits, uh, uh, job application credits, you have to go and put your credit card in and, and repeat the transaction. You have to go through a journey. Whereas if you, used, if you use reference transactions, you just give them a button to click and then it's yeah. done. Job done. That's slick. That's slick. Well, you see, I give you some code, it helps you out, then you give me some insight, and that's going to help me out. Yeah, now you're going to have to do some extra work. Let's hope that Joe's not listening to this. <laughs> see, now I'm going to feel like I have to tell Joe. Uh, Joe's going, well, that's awesome. Can you develop it? And so now, now you just made me do more work. Thanks. Sorry. Well, listen, you get paid for that work, don't you? No. <laughs> oh, no. That's, oh. Well, I, you know, I got, I got my, my set equity amount for building the first version of, of the that amount changing i'm just building it i'm just continuing to sort of add small improvements bug fixes until we get funding now there's like four other developers now who are involved right and um so this just kind of segues into another uh thing that we're worth uh, another topic which is uh we're, gonna, we're using git now oh yeah I know I haven't set it up there was a there was a, a developer meeting we had a developer conference call on um it was on Friday, but I missed it. I was uh, I, we were talking about it on Yammer, and they said, "Oh, let's do it at three o'clock and six o'clock." And I sort of missed it, and I had it in my head that it was at three thirty Pacific time, and what they meant was Eastern time. So I missed it. So whatever they're talking about about what we need to do to configure Git, I missed it. So I got to go through and set everything up. But anyway, I'm we're gonna. It's gonna be interesting because I'm gonna use uh, Tortoise Git, which I think you had suggested, because you use Tortoise SVN. Yeah. And that seems like that's probably pretty easy. It integrates in with Windows uh, Explorer and everything, or Windows Explorer, yeah. So, um, yeah, finally, finally, Git with Git, the, the latest and coolest 
uh, version control system in the world, right? Mercurial. It's Mercurial Cooler. Then get. Which is the one that uh, Linus Torvaldus made? He made Git. He was oh, one fine, okay. That's the coolest. Of, yeah, I think um, Mercurial is all as a Python. Is, it's all Python based, right? So that's what like the, the Python repositories oh. use. Mercurial. I remember reading a big article about they were going back and forth between at least the community to decide what what um, version control system where you're going to use Git or Mercurial. So, so you had uh, you said you had some other interesting topics to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll cover a couple of them first, uh, short ones. So you, you remember we were talking about this this one client project I'm working on is uh, is a trading soft, uh, building some tra- trading platform, and we're processing huge quantities of of market data. Yeah. So, and, and it's all distributed, so you have serve multiple servers involved and in, in any number of client machines because traders will be sitting at, at client machines and they need to be looking at market data and they could be looking at a huge number of, of stocks or futures and they need to get all this data. So it's just, it's just, it's just you need a very sophisticated and high-performance uh, messaging platform to make this thing work really well. And a lot of those messaging platforms are extremely expensive. To get, to you said it was falling over. Well, one of the problems was the... We were kind of peaking out at like 6,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 trans, uh, messages per second. Right. Which I thought was really strange. Um, just looking at the kind of throughput you should have on a gigabit machine and also the fact that the CPU utilization wasn't nearly as high to seem like it was – it wasn't that the CPU was getting overwhelmed. So it was having a hard – I was, wasn't sure what was going on. Now, at the time, I really hadn't spent much time trying to optimize it. I just – I got it working, and then we tested it, see what the throughput was, and we thought about it for like you know 20, 30 minutes. We're like, wow, this that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Why is this so low? Well, it turns out that the test app that I was using, the client app that we were using to to, to test the um, subscribing and of symbols, um, of, of 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 stock symbols from the that was getting messages from this other server. Um, I you know it's it's a .NET client and. I had created the messaging uh, connection, sort of the, 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 the sort of contains a socket on the, um, on the primary thread, on the GUI thread. And then what happens is, though, is when you get data off one thread, when you get information off one thread and it has to be displayed on, in, in the UI thread, it has to, you have to call this sort of like invoke function and use like a delegate to cross over to the, from one thread to another within the GUI. Yeah. And... All of a sudden, I realized that every single message, even though if we were only updating the the, uh, the the stock prices and stuff five times a second, it was still getting huge amounts of data. And every single time I got a message through, it would have to cross over this thread. And I thought, you know, I bet you that's a, I bet you that's killing it. So I, sure enough, I took it off the thread and created it, put it in its own thread, and make sure it only crossed over to the UI thread if and when it was it needed to update the UI thread. And then of course now it jumped up like capacity jumped up like eight or ten x. And I was like forty. So it was 000. the it was the debugging that was killing it. You no, know, it wasn't the debugging. It was crossing over from the socket thread to the UI thread. Right. It was it would be because you have to call this invoke. Uh, it's it's like a the the Windows forms and and stuff have like an, an invoke uh, function call and you pass it like a delegate to an update function or whatever. I mean I don't want to get too into it because if you're not a .NET C sharp user or whatever you're gonna be like what. What are they talking about? But yeah. the point is, it was just like you look at these things, and it's like you have to just kind of go through a series of of 
thinking about what could possibly be slowing this down because we ran it through like a, a profiler and it was it kept saying, well, the Windows, it was like some kind of a Windows function that was behind the scenes that was taking all the compa- all the uh, heat. Yeah. Like, well, I don't know. You know, if Windows, if some Windows API function just can't handle it, then maybe it's just the sockets are slow. But it just seemed weird to me. It didn't seem right. And I was I actually solved the problem. I think it was when uh, we were driving on the highway over the we over the vacation we went to visit, you know, my wife's uh, in, uh, parents, and we we're out on the highway driving. And I remember thinking, I think it occurred to me just sitting there because I do. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I solve a lot of my problems when I'm not coding. Yeah. I'm actually doing stuff. No, that happens to me all the time. So that was really exciting to to, to make that kind of like a. Uh, you just go, oh, I know what the problem is, and you go and fix it, and it's like 10 times faster. You're like, oh, this is awesome. Okay, 50,000 messages per second. And now we haven't even, at this point, we haven't even started to really optimize with like message size. I mean, the messages, let's say they're 50 bytes, I might be able to get them down to 35 bytes, and I might be able to do a handful of other things to double or triple or, you know, the, uh, the performance. So maybe we can get up to 100,000 messages per second, in which case you're really good shape so that's fantastic did you get um did did your team how many guys are you working on with that you're looking at him you're talking to him oh okay okay team jason (laughs) (laughs) cool as always it's just me um so yeah i built the whole messaging platform both i have a socket a a, i'm sorry a c plus plus and a c sharp uh version of this yeah you you were saying that the um the C-sharp version was a lot slower, and then you moved into the C++ version, is it? Yeah, C++ is uh, – well, I'm not sure if – yeah, the C++ is faster. The C++ is like five times faster than the .NET version. Yeah. And the C++ version uses a standard um, – like the Berkeley socket select um, model. It doesn't use like this IO completion port stuff, which is supposedly even more performant, but – it's more complex, and I said, well, let me get the select version and see how fast that is, and, and that, that's fast enough, and it works. It's stable. So, um, But it's really cool. So I, I've been building these socket-based messaging libraries. I've had – my, my name for it is Velocity. I, was, I, was, I, I named it Velocity like eight, ten years ago. I had a – our first version of this stuff was back in VB6. So all our apps were in VB6, and I said, well, how are we going to get information between all these VB um, apps? And – at the time, you know, you'd use stuff like DCOM, which was all synchronous function calls. It was incredibly slow. It just you couldn't do that. Use DCOM, which is distributed COM. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Windows development, but that was sort of the that was a sort of object model for Windows is COM, and DCOM is just sort of this overly complex way of sending mess of sending making function calls from one machine to another. Anyway, I said, "Right, screw that. We need an asynchronous model." And so I built a I built this messaging message passing platform built on uh, sockets called Velocity. And so now this is my latest incarnation. There's a .NET and, and a C++ version. And uh, it's, it's pretty cool because it's so simple. Like the API, like you could use it. And like, it's like, right, there's three function calls, instantiate an object. You have three events, on connect, on disconnect, on receive message. And, and so is it, derive- is it uh, Jason's version of Erlang? Yeah, you know, I was kind of thinking about that. It's like <laughs> there's things like Erlang, which are like they're custom built for, for distributed message passing asynchronous type of stuff but unless you're an erlang expert and then of course the problem with erlang and things like third things like erlang is like then all of a sudden everything has to be kind of erlang well then how do i how to build a .NET app you know or how do i interface erlang with .NET? you get all these issues and um i was like you know i'll bet you i could 
put a, 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 a even simpler layer on top of this uh, velocity uh, socket message passing library, and where you could ha you could connect to any number of other objects or processes on this network, and they could connect to anything else, and you could and you could just be sending messages back and forth. There's huge quantities of information. All this stuff could be asynchronous, and nothing blocks anything else. And there's no shared memory. Why don't you and make it open source? I was kind of thinking about that because I've worked on various variations on this. I'm like, you know, I would very easy to to have like a Java.net, C++. You know, I could just for for the hell of it make a few other different languages. You know, like maybe a Python or whatever. And you could have all these things in communicating with each other. And it would take it would it might take you like 15 minutes to figure out how to use it. It's like okay, so you have uh, an iMessage. As long as you derive your object or you implement the iMessage interface. And you and you and you override. Uh, you you create two uh, functions: an enc an encode and a, a decode um, function to encode your decode to bi in binary your uh, your message. Then you're you're kind of done. <laughs> like you haven't you haven't done open source before, have you? You haven't released. I never have. Project. No, I never have. <laughs> I, I just never had recommend the time. It. I've just I've just always been like you know, so busy with so much stuff. I just never had the time to do it. I, so I have tons of of kind of projects that could have been open source. They're just sitting in my hard drive rotting. You know, which is probably like a lot of people. So I'm just reading the um, the texting blog here, um, looking at texting number 24 in face of uncertainty, looking at some of the comments. And uh, I like what Robin says. I'm really enjoying your podcast. Just the right mix of tech talk and general tech business thoughts. I like the way you talk between yourselves about your theories and don't always agree. <laughs> <laughs> which is that's an understatement. I was thinking about that. We uh, don't agree on a lot of stuff, which is. Kind of funny. Yeah. And by the way, for all your listeners, it's not um, contrived. We we legitimately <laughs> don't agree. Uh, um, and by the way, for all your listeners, the main point is that Jason is generally wrong. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> I'm off my rocker. Um, no, so, maybe uh, I'm wrong. I don't know. No, I th you've. I mean, you've really opened my eyes on on a number of issues. You know what happens? We we don't agree in the podcast, and then I go away and I think about it, and then I it kind of expands my horizons when I when I sort of think about it at a later stage. <laughs> well, I'm a little bit of a contrarian, I guess. Yeah. And I, 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 and maybe my point of view comes across at first, particularly unorthodox and contrarian, or maybe just flat out wrong. But well, you, I'm not saying I'm always right. I, a lot of times, what I say, the way I do things, the way things I believe, it's just that's the way I do it. I'm not prescribing it for anybody else saying, oh, you should do this, or this is the best way. I'm just saying, this is the way I like to do it. It works for well, me. Well, it's sort of like the religious versus pagan. I mean, you are a pagan. You are basically, and, and even a P word works, you are essentially a, a pragmatist. Your religion yeah. is being a pragmatist. End of story. You know, you don't care about best practice as much as you care about getting it out there, getting it done. And that, like, you don't care what route you take to getting it done. It doesn't make any difference. You just want it to be done. And I, yeah, I want to. I want to be done. I want it to be solid and fast, or all this kind of bug-free, that kind of stuff. And I want to enjoy what I'm doing because a lot of times there's these practices or approaches. I'm like, I think that sucks. I would not have fun doing it, and therefore I wouldn't. I wouldn't be very productive. Like here's here, like this leads into another issue, right? Well, one thing I want to say the, the whole velocity thing, the whole velocity messaging platform. I yeah. may source that because that would be a pretty slick thing because I know there are other messaging frameworks and things out there, but they're fairly complicated and there's queues and exchanges and all this crap. And I'm like, well, that stuff is just more than what you need. What you really want is to be able to just send a message to any other process and have any other process receive it. And all you have is like a 
you know, a connection, an I connection object, an I message object, and that's really it. I just think that anyone should should uh, not anyone. I think everyone should release open source software because it, the experience that's really interesting is dealing with the support and making sure the documentation is good enough. And if you can release um, open source software and it becomes successful, it it's a real prover for you in terms of business and in terms of development. You know, being a developer, it's very 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 good. I re I recommend it because. So much, so much uh, knowledge and learning is going to come your way from creating an open source project. Yeah, it might be worth. You know, what would be interesting, right? Is so. I the, speaking in terms of velocity, right? So I have the like the C plus plus asynchronous <coughs> message passing. Um, is uh, at least the socket aspect of it. it I'm, there are definitely people out there who are socket who know more about Windows sockets than I do, and they could say, okay. Jason, I see what you're doing with the select and the C++, and that's fast. You could probably double or triple, triple your efficiency if you do this IO completion port thing. And by the way, I just wrote up the three routines you needed. Boom, you're done. As opposed to me spending a week researching some, you know, uh, obscure uh, MSDN tech article on the IO completion port model of C++. So then you need to make I the decision about folding their code back into your code, and that's a tough decision in its own right. Especially when you get three people sending the same piece of code in three different ways. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so what yeah. usually would would happen is is that you would sort of take their ideas and rewrite the code and make it do what they wanted. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't mind doing that. So, I, I would I would actually find that interesting because that because just a point when you're writing code, there's some deep dark area where it's just like I'm not going to go too much deeper on that right now. I mean, I I don't have the time to to do the IO completion port model for the C++ sockets. I've done as much research because that's a deep dark alley that could take, just by itself, could take a, a couple weeks of work and research and, and experimentation. Whereas there could be somebody who, 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 who's done a lot of that and they could say, oh, here's your, you know, here's a hundred lines of code. It's done. It's solid. It works. Yeah. And then you can just, yeah. So that, that would be kind of exciting for me because that would save me a lot of time. <laughs> So you and, said it was uh, gonna. This was gonna segue somewhere else. What were you? What were you thinking? Yeah. About? Okay. So we're talking about doing things your own way. You know how I I tend to be sort of a an a, a pagan or whatever. And <laughs> one, one thing we've talked about a little bit is, is this test driven development. And yeah. I'm reading this book. I I think I told you reading Coders at Work, which I'm really enjoying. The interview, you know, guys like um, Guy Steele and Joe Armstrong created Erlang and all these kind of guy. Uh, was it Simon Payton created Haskell? All right, for those kind of people. So the the super geniuses of the software development world, and um, the guy who uh, I think his name is Siebel, um, Peter Siebel maybe might be his name, the author, and he um, he asked them a series of questions. A lot of me like, how do you hire? How do you how do you hire? Or how can you recognize great programmers? Or you know, do you do literate programming? That seems to be a big thing. He keeps talking about literate programming. He asked them all about literate programming. What's your favorite books? That kind of stuff. But one of the things he asked was about the test driven development. And a lot of them say, yeah, you know, they do some, and they see the value in it. And I, and I do some, I do some on occasion, depending on if it's something that I find easily testable, that's complex and easily testable. But one thing I notice is the stuff, the the, the sort of the the secret project I'm working on, right. is that a lot of it is very exploratory. Like I don't even know what the hell it's gonna do. I'm not even sure what if I if, if I even understand some aspects of it well enough. Even say, well, this is what the interface is going to be because I don't even know what's going to work. I'm just sort of like experimenting. Well, that's right? interesting. Like, I... That that kind of falls in line with what I've learned about test-driven development. 
and I've sort of got a, a place where I can draw a line in the sand about it, which is test, in my experience, test-driven development works fantastically if you're building tools for other developers. So for example, if you're building an API, then test-driven yeah. development is fantastic. If you're building a library, then test-driven development is fantastic. But if you're building something like TweetMiner or your secret project, test-driven development is just going to slow you down and it's not really going to help you that much. That's my opinion. Yeah, because I, I couldn't even imagine. A couple of times I took, I took a step back. I'm like, how would I even do write unit tests for this stuff when I don't even know what the inputs and outputs are supposed to be? I don't even know if my approach is going to work. I mean, a lot of times I'm sitting there writing code and I'm kind of holding my breath going, God, I hope this works. Does this make any sense? I, I don't even know. I feel like I'm, I'm kind of walking around in a foggy room, dark room, and I'm just kind of grasping for anything solid. Like, I don't even know. And then you, you kind of get to a point where like, Okay, I think this is kind of right. I think I'm right. And you run it, you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's it, or that's close, and you get it, and then you're like, okay, that's that's fine. That but is like you, a, a red flag to a bull. What you just said, you don't well, no, know what just, the, you don't know what the inputs and outputs are going to be of your functions. Well, you, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do to a degree, but I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff about it that I'm just experimenting. Like I'm just because uh, I think in code. Like a lot of people, they have to they have to they draw diagrams. Right. Yeah. Or they 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 get up on a whiteboard, or they they draw pictures, or maybe they describe it in, in sentences. I actually think better by actually just writing out some rough code. So I'm kind of sketching it out. I'm kind of crafting it, and then as I get closer, I'm kind of like, all right, let me kind of go down this route a little bit and see how this kind of works, and build something real simple, see if it works, and then kind of expand it or improve it. That's exactly the same as Hackers and Painters. Have you ever read that? I have. I have uh, by Paul Graham. Yeah, and basically. You know, he was just saying that a lot of people work that way. Just works better for them to just sketch it out. That's the way art works. Yeah, well, that's that's the way I work, and and uh, I'm very productive that way. I get a lot done, and and and, and I'm happy doing. It. I have fun, and it makes. And, and the only way you're going to be productive is if you're enjoying what you're doing too. If I'm forced to do something a way that I would hate, like okay, now you have to get out and, and describe the whole all the ten interfaces. I'd be like, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know. I, I mean, I, I can't see. I can't see that far down the road. I gotta. I gotta go. I can't see from A to Z. I have to. I just trying to get to B and to C at this point. I think. Case, finally, we found something you know. we've got in common because I love to work that way, just to sketch it out. And and yeah. once again, you know, rather than think about the whole big picture down the line, all you know, I hate the whole big upfront design thing. I much prefer to build it bit by bit as you go yeah. along, and then those the upfront design sort of makes itself uh, available to you as you go along. And that is emergent design, which I think is great. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and so when people, some people get, they, they get so um, over the top with things like test-driven development. And people get over the top with everything. Yeah. And they, they buy into the religion, they drink the Kool-Aid, and they're like, oh, you have to always do it. And if you're not, you're just not following best practices, and you don't know what you're doing, and you're unprofessional. It's like, dude, you know, chill out. <laughs> In some cases, it's going to slow you down, and you're not going to be able to. Because I, if, if I, I wouldn't be able to make progress because I wouldn't be able to learn anything about it enough to make the design. So I have to, I have to learn about the problem before I start understanding the interface, and then I, am I go through a series of like small iterations of constantly trying things, refactoring, cleaning it up, and just going back and just a small iterations over and over and over again, and it starts to take shape. And yeah. it starts to, and then you and then, and then when it gets towards an end, you're like, okay, now here's kind of a subsystem, and these are these clearly defined objects, and they share this interface, and then you can kind of write some, you know, some tests, some unit tests for that if you want to make sure that 
that when you make other changes down the road that you don't break everything which is very useful well it's good i mean an, another another way of looking at the whole uh, unit test thing is think about the code which is reused and test that you know the code that touches the code that's coupled with more parts of the site and that's the base your base libraries that should probably be unit tested yes yeah <laughs> because and it's going to break a are... lot of stuff yeah, I think it's I think it's good when you because there's definitely some things that I wrote some I've already written you know a few dozen unit tests for some stuff that's very unit testable in that way and it's um and it's it's important to do that because if it is if it breaks everything could screw up and it'd be easy to break it you know it's you know it's kind of um, it's kind of interesting too. It's like when you're doing this approach where kind of exploratory programming where you're experimenting and you're going down the road and and in the project that I'm working on, it's so I'm so excited about it. And when I'm exploring, there's these parts that like you can kind of feel that there's some deep dark alley over there, and you're like, oh man, that's some scary stuff. I don't know if this is gonna work, right? Like yeah. I'm not sure how to solve this. I'm not sure it work. And you get that sort of like that almost that pit at the bottom of your stomach, like oh man, <laughs> like this. If I don't get this thought out the right, if I don't think this out the right way, the whole thing is gonna fail. You know, you get this really bad feeling. And one of the things I like to try and do is hit those as soon as possible. Like, don't spend too much stuff on the – ignore the easy stuff and go for the areas where they're just dark and scary and try and figure them out. Try and get something working. Cool. Right? Because if not, <laughs> you, you know, you're, you're too scared to attack the code because you don't really understand it. And then it might come down that, that the fact that you don't understand it means it just isn't going to work and you paint yourself in a corner and you're screwed. You ever have a, a, a bug that just niggles you? And you can't work out what it is, and you can't fix it. It's just there for years. We had we had this one yeah. uh, at first consult where, if you, we had this thing called uh, the launch pad, <laughs> uh -huh. which is basically a way of getting into all of our products. So everyone had like a home page. It was just like an HTML file that was off a yeah. central server. And when you clicked a link to go into the website from the launch pad, the cookies behaved differently when you got to the website, and for some right. reason session cookies didn't work properly whereas if you just typed the went to the domain directly from the browser then the cookies all work fine and we just could never work out why that was happening and it was so irritating because internal staff would always say oh there was a problem and it couldn't work this way and i couldn't get this to work and it was just because they'd gone in via this launchpad route yeah yeah no, no, there, there are always those really bugs and sometimes what i'll do is is i will just literally throw away the code <laughs> that's around it. start from scratch yeah. you know if i can't sometimes it's like well you, you spend so much time on it you're pulling your hair out and you can't you can't figure it out because you know it's like sometimes debugging is, is, is sort of like a binary search right so it's like there's the the state there's an there's a state before you implemented the feature where everything worked and then there's a state now where it completely doesn't work right and so you go halfway in between and go well at what point in the code it, did it stop working, right? You kind of buy, binary search your way there. And if that fails, and sometimes it's like, let me just kind of start over and inch my way forward you know, with a new design. Maybe there's something about the way that I created this design just doesn't work. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, it does make sense. But sometimes the bugs are the result of some kind of third-party thing. And, and that, that was... and that is exactly why I avoid using all these third-party <laughs> crap, which you always give me a hard time about, because I like control over it. Because, for instance, like this messaging stuff, we're using this thing, the zero MQ library, which, you know, is very high, you know, 
very sophisticated and the guys who wrote it are probably, you know, messaging super geniuses or whatever. And, um, but some of the stuff was acting kind of weird and it was, it would not work in certain cases. And like, I, you know, it's like when it stopped working and it was just some of the CAPI, I, I don't know. It's like, I've just implemented Twitter lists into tweet miner and just, just, I don't know why, but their API doesn't update properly. Like when you add a new member to a list via the API and then you go back to the list it doesn't instantly bring that new person's tweets in. It's like, right. oh, annoying. Yeah, so it's like, Having to rely but if you, if, you, if, you, if you go from the base and say, look, I'm writing a ROS, my own ROS socket uh, library. I know how sockets work. Sockets, they, it's like reading from a text file or something. You know, They're complicated in some ways, but once you understand it, they, they will, it will work. Um, it's not, there's nothing that you can't get working, and uh, that's kind of why I avoid, that's, avoid using third-party stuff as, unless it's some very focused completely debugged thing yeah but then you've got to start thinking about other really complicated low-level things like for example character sets mm -hmm. so if you're if you're working at that low level and you're not extremely familiar with the way character sets work and multi-byte and all this stuff then there's other bugs so, so essentially that's sort of like being reliant on third parties because you're you know you're reliant on the whole character set implementation and understanding it yeah I, well i don't know i mean I guess you, you you kind of have to pick and choose your the the, the battle you want to fight. Do you want to do you want to fight the battle where it's trying to understand this third party code that seems to be not work and why it doesn't I mean, work? Jason, you might you, I mean the truth is you might as well rewrite the IP stack. Yeah, you know no, what I'm saying. And I'm, not, I'm not that extreme. I'm not that extreme. I'm not. Well, I, mean, well, I don't what, write my know, own operating system. I'm just that you know. could be the bug. The bug could be in the IP stack. Yeah. Could be, but I, you know, I, I, I draw the line somewhere. Obviously, I don't, I don't, you know, I didn't write my own scripting language. I use PHP. <laughs> I don't write my own database. Oh, I have written my own uh, database for, uh, for time series because no one work for yeah. that. But uh, yeah. Anyway, so let's let's uh, switch topics. This guy, a couple more things that are kind of interesting. Okay, what, sure. what I noticed, um, well, this is kind of a non-technical thing is that you know yesterday we took the kids down to the beach you know um down to third street promenade at, at santa monica yeah um we spent the sort of the first half of the day down there and then we came back and the kids the kids were all blown out so they all took their naps and my wife took a nap everybody was done so i'm like okay i'm gonna spend the next four to five hours just working and i get so much work done in on weekends on the after when there's just no interruptions. There's no expectations of what I'm supposed to accomplish. And it's, it's something about the freedom of the weekend that allows my brain to, to work better. Well, that's it's, why divorce people uh, are richer. <laughs> that's why it works, because they have no pressure? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I just find, I mean, do you, get, do you work much on the weekends versus weeknights and things like that? Not so much, because um, my setup's slightly different. Um, I, you know, the weekends is the time where I really get to spend spend uh, time with Georgie because during the weeks I'm totally working 24/7 kind of thing, and so is she. So weekend is the, is really the downtime for us. You guys are playing a whole weekend. Yeah. Yeah. So well, since I work at home, I see in Sandy's. We have three kids, and she's full time mom. Uh, you know, I see her all day long. Right. Every yep. time I take a break or I eat lunch or whatever, I'm like, oh, we're hanging out and talking and. Things like that. So I see her all throughout the day, and the and obviously all in the evenings and everything. And then, but on the weekends, it's kind of like I split my time between working and and, and playing. So yeah. I'll spend time with kids, or we go do stuff. And then it then it's like 
you, you get these three or four hour blocks, maybe in the morning or in the afternoon, where or a few hours here and there, and then I could just. So it's just amazing. Just why is got, a weekend even different for you? Because if you think about it, every day you've got your whole family there, and with the weekends you've got your whole family there. What's the difference that makes a Saturday and a Sunday different to a Monday to a Friday in your life? It's an interesting question. Well, first of all, so one of my clients, I I I do like a four hour session every morning okay. on a weekday. So that's like that's spoken for. That four hours is spoken for up until say lunchtime. And then I'm work I'm usually working with Guyon on the secret project for like an hour, hour and a half. And so if I do lunch and I do that, and then I might get another couple hours in before it's time with I, you know, around five o'clock, five thirty, and I take the kids and uh, to the gym with me. And uh that's sort of like a very regimented schedule so you have a structure during the week and that's what very makes the difference. very structured so there's not a whole lot of time where i can just say well i just want to experiment with this or try this other stuff or on the weekends i don't feel that kind of pressure i just mm. feel like i can i mean i don't have like an infinite amount of time but i might get like you know a three or four hour block on each day where i can just really do do a lot of damage and yesterday was that day we got back from the beach Got back around, and it was about two o'clock, and you know, we'd spent hours and hours playing with the kids. Everybody's completely blown out. You really felt like a whole day had happened by two o'clock, and you know, it gets dark by five, so there really wasn't anything going to go. By the time the kids woke up from the nap, it's not like anything was going to happen. Not like we could really go to the park after that because it's already dark. So it was kind of inside. Every you know, we we're going to be inside doing inside stuff, and Sandy was sort of handling that. And um, yeah, so I just had like four hours. And I just, it was like, it's like I got like two days worth of work done, three days worth of work done. It was amazing. That is cool. I love those opportunities. I love it when that happens. You just like, you know, because it's like, because there are no interruptions and because it just feels like there are no expectations, your brain is just like a little freer. You can just sort of (laughs) think better or something. I don't know. I I love it. And I was reading about, there's this thing that popped up on Hacker News and it was, um, they call it like a, a dot plan file. It was from 1998. And it was John Carmack had, was writing these. It was almost like it was like a like an internal blog about things that he was working on, things that had been accomplished, what was coming up. And he would take these. He was talking about taking these research weeks where he would take a week about once a quarter, and he would just disappear, might go to a hotel and and not communicate with anybody, and he would just go off on a research week. And I remember hearing the same kind of thing at Bill Gates used to do something and he would call them reading weeks. I think it was actually two weeks. It was either a week or two weeks. And he would do it like the same thing like once a year, maybe it was like once a year where he would just go off and just read for two weeks. One thing that was um, pretty interesting that I saw this week, uh, just switching the topic here very quickly, is a Derek Sivers blog post about why I gave my company away to charity. Did you see that? I, I did. I didn't read it. I have another article that he wrote that I want to talk about. But yeah, go ahead. I just think it's interesting. I mean, basically, he made, you know, in excess of 20 million or whatever. And he just decided. CD Baby. Yeah, with CD Baby. CD and he Baby. just decided to completely abstract himself from the company, set up a trust, and give all of the money to the trust. He only takes a small percentage of what the trust makes just to live off because that's enough for him to maintain his house and his lifestyle. And the rest right. is just going to go into developing um, musicians and artists. Wow, it very is just generous interesting. Guy. Well, it's I mean it's generous, but also, you know, he's got some good reasons that he did it. Basically, things like personal happiness, pride, you know, um, safety, so that he, you know, he knows that he's not going to be the target of uh, lawsuits and things like that. And also, he says he gets the unburdened freedom of having it out of his hands, so that he can't do something stupid and fuck it up. 
Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I think they call that an irrevocable trust when you put money in. Where so for someone sued you, they couldn't get at. Nobody could get at it. It's like an irrevocable trust or something. But it's not like it's his money anymore. I mean, he doesn't have it. He's he's basically given it away. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, it's like he's almost it's almost like it's like a Buddhist approach or something to life or like a minimalist approach um, to life, which. There's a lot of argument for why that's a better approach than. And I think in, the, in in the Western culture we get so caught up with more and more and more and accumulating, and our lives get more and more complicated. And I mean, all of a sudden you're worth twenty million dollars. Let's say, like I don't know how much he, uh, money CD Baby sold sold for, but let's say it's twenty or thirty million or some huge amount of money. Then all of a sudden you're tempted. Okay, we have a big house now. It's like, well, I'm on a beach house. I like to go to the beach, and now you own like, and I have a condo in like this other city, like New York or London or you know a flat or whatever because I go there. So, so that seems like a really cool idea. But now you got to maintain all those things, and and you got to pay all these bills, and you got to, and then it's like, well, I don't want to have to deal with having to maintain these houses. So now I have to have support staff, and I don't want to deal with that. So now I can have an accountant or a personal assistant who's paying these people and making sure these things are getting done. And it's like, what a nightmare. I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd be pretty happy to have a house in London and America. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's it sounds really cool, but there's just a lot of maintenance that goes beyond goes along with it, I think. Yeah. It's like the whole, it's, it's kind of similar to what we talk about. Like every time you add a feature, your product, you'd be careful because it's going to add a lot of complexity your product that you're not anticipating. Yeah. And I think every time you accumulate something in life, especially if it's something like a house or a car, a house in particular probably, that 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 is going to bring on a lot of additional work for you. And if it's not for you specifically, then it's for other people who you have to pay and manage and deal with. So let's say you have let's say you don't have a car, right? You live in somewhere like New York or or, or some city where you don't really have to have one and you just take public then you just don't have to deal with registering it and Getting it checked all the time and getting it repaired when it needs to get repaired and uh, you know. But it's not really insurance. bringing more complexity to your life because you just take the Tim Ferriss approach, the four-hour work week, and you just outsource everything. You just you know you have a guy in London who looks after your London house and London affairs. You have a guy. Yeah, in... but it's still more complicated. Now 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 you have to manage this guy who's doing this stuff, and you have to make sure he's doing the right job, and things aren't getting screwed up, and the bills are getting paid, and the house is getting cleaned, and the locks nobody's breaking in, and or it's being rented yeah, but out. You have a house in London. I, I'm not like saying. Like you can go look, on holiday. I'm, you can you can I'm fly not saying, to London and stay in your house. I'm not saying. Look, I'm not saying that having a house in London or in Buenos Aires or in the south of France or wherever wouldn't be cool and fun. It wouldn't make your life. Uh, more interesting in some ways. You can go and live in these places. I'm just saying that it adds on a lot of complexity. Okay, like, let, me, I know, let me ask I you know, a question. If you got the money, if you got 20 million, would you give it away like this? I probably wouldn't give it away like that. I'd probably <laughs> help people for certain. I'd probably definitely be very philanthropic about it. I have a lot of ideas of how I would do that. Yeah. But I'm just saying that I would be wary of of adding a lot of complexity in my life. Like I know a guy who who sold his company and worth a lot He's a really cool guy, really interesting and uh, person, and um, but uh, you know, and he has like you know beach house and a house up in the ski slopes, and and it just seems like every time I'm talking, and he has like three or four cars, and every time it's like we'll be meeting for lunch, he's like, oh yeah, okay, great, we'll get lunch, but I gotta go drop this car off, and I go get this other car fixed, and then I gotta run up to my house in Big Bear because this thing didn't happen. I'm just like, God, he's like life maintenance. Like I don't have anything to do with that crap. Yeah, that is a good point. Life maintenance. It's like I hate life maintenance. I don't want to spend time paying bills and doing crap any more than I have to. Keep that to a minimum. And, you know, luckily, my wife Sandy is 
much more of the operations. <laughs> People who have like, a lot of things do spend a long time uh, maintaining them. I've got a friend in, in London who, who loves things. He just loves little things like cars and CDs and just different it's, stuff. It's, and he it's ends like a, up maintaining it all the time. It always breaks. And, and that's right. Maybe he's just unlucky, but he he always seems to be in a repair shop getting it fixed. Well, that's that's the having crap. It's like boats. They say like the ha- the the second happiest day of your life is the day you buy a boat, and the happiest day is the day you sell it. Because <laughs> 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 you just spend so much time, you know, having it maintained, and is it being docked, and is it? I mean, I don't know anything about boats. So I don't know what you do, but it sounds like it's probably a headache. And um, it's all these kind of things that it's like. Unless you're going to use this stuff all the time and get a huge amount of happiness and fun out of it, it just sounds like it's just a lot of damn work. And I'm much more of the approach of I prefer minimalism. I don't want to deal with a lot of crap. And I've already committed myself to too many things, which I've talked about on the podcast. I have too many obligations involved in too many projects. And so I'm craving simplicity. I'm like, God, oh, I just don't want to have to deal with all this stuff. One, thing, one sort of brainstorm that Georgie and me have quite regularly is – Maybe we should move to the middle of nowhere, where it's incredibly cheap to live, really simple. We're not even in a city; we're just we're just in the country somewhere. Maybe even to like I don't know India or something, or or do what Peldi did and move to Tuscany, and then just run you know run our online businesses from this really cheap location. So we don't need to make a, a multi million dollar business. We can survive yeah, well, off a lot less. Yeah, especially if Tweetminer continues to work and maybe 18 months from now you're in a really solid position, then you really would have that option, especially if it made enough at that point where Georgie didn't really have to work and you guys could, you know, live nicely. It sounds nice. I mean, imagine a simple life in Tuscany every day, going to a local restaurant, having some fantastic wine and cheese, and then maybe working a a couple of hours a day on your – on your web project. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's why it's so funny when you hear people talk sort of derisively about – Start oh I, 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 that's a lifestyle business like you hear VCs or I don't know, people in the startup are like oh if you just want a lifestyle business it's like well, you don't want a lifestyle business I mean you want headache and you want bigness for bigness sake like I want thirty employees so that I can one day have forty employees yeah. it's like really is that what you want managing people and and headache and I don't know I mean I'd much rather have a smaller business I mean it's not that I wouldn't mind having that I would only want it to be a one-person company. I mean, it wouldn't mind. It would. It might be kind of fun to have a, a half dozen to a dozen people, but I don't know, man. The lifestyle business. Basically, what you're saying is, I want a nice life. Yeah. Right. I'm. 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 I'm skipping all the BS of, of buying, a, of building a company and selling it, and then all of a sudden, now I don't have anything to do, but I have a lot of money, so I'm kind of bored. It's like, wouldn't you like to have something that makes you more than enough money to have a nice lifestyle, have tons of freedom, to do what you want? I mean, I- and you're involved in doing something on a day-to-day basis that you really enjoy. We could actually do that right now. I mean, think about it. We could move to Greece and buy a little fishing boat, right? And just off our current contracts, just work a couple of hours a day because it's so cheap in this in those kind of climates. You could just be in the sun, the fishing boat. And like, why don't we do it? Why why do we stay in this this culture with all these? Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting. Well, Joel Ramont, who we interviewed in what was that like? You had me at Erlang, which is like yeah. five or six or something like that. And he was doing that, right? He lived on a boat, or no, he didn't live on. He had a boat. Yeah. He lived in a really nice townhome, and what was that? What was that place called? Off, um, off the Tenerife. Tenerife. Yeah. He was living the life. He would take months off at a time. Right. Oh, why don't we do that? And he even has a kid. It's not like it's not like well, it's, because one thing you might say, well, when you have kids, you have to do this and that. But for instance, for us, you know, we have three kids: five and five, three, and almost two. 
and it's kind of like um, you obviously want to live in an environment that's that works for kids. So it's not like I would necessarily want to live or move to some third world country that may not. Have. I don't know. You could, you could move all kind of different places. That's that's one of the nice things about you know these sort of virtual businesses or or, or these online businesses. You can be in a different country, a different state, whatever. And uh, I don't know, but the thing is, is like I Pasadena, which is where I live, I, I love. It is really expensive. Unfortunately, the 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 housing is incredibly expensive. Really, but, well, I mean, what could you get? Could you get a house there for say four hundred thousand, three hundred thousand? No, not even close. Okay. Like, uh, for instance, in our we live in a condo in our com our, in our complex. To get like a two bedroom condo, and these are condos were built in the eighties. It's even now, even after the housing prices dropped, it's still around four hundred and thirty. Hmm. I think for the low end, they were up around five twenty. So, if you wanted like a a nice like three bedroom home, it probably cost you eight hundred grand or so, maybe hmm. more than that, under to a million. Very expensive. So if you, if you went to like Arkansas or something or Texas or whatever, you could get a five bedroom house for three hundred grand or something, no problem. Two fifty. I don't know. It depends. I, I, yeah. So. Yeah, because I was looking in New New Hampshire, the house prices like for four hundred thousand, you can get like a beautiful, huge three bedroom house, four bedroom house. Yeah. It's amazing how different, you know, different areas you get such different value for your money. The, the other thing though about moving to other areas is though is what are the what are the activities you want to be involved in, or do you know people there? I mean, if if you don't really if you're not really involved in things where you currently live. Yeah. Or you don't have a ton of friends and family where you currently live, then, you know, why not? For us, I don't know. I really like where we live. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of friends now. I'm involved in a lot of stuff. Yeah, I don't know. It would be hard for me to say, all right, well, let's just pick up and move to, you know, Oregon. We don't know anyone there. Let's really start from scratch. <laughs> you know, because when you first move somewhere, you know, it seems like a really cool thing, and it's just like you don't know anybody. And sometimes it's hard to like get hooked in and meet people, and get and, and you just have this kind of really boring life because you just you're not involved in anything. It's just you and your wife, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's like what a boring life, I, you and your wife. <laughs> well, I run out of I run out of material after an hour or two. I got nothing else to say. It's interesting. <laughs> I'm got, like you know, instead of running, it's like when we would go on a um, a, you know, on a vacation and. You know, after a couple of days, I'm just like, oh, it'd be so much more fun if we had brought like couples who are friends with us, like a <laughs> like a bunch of us went. Because it's like you, you you just generate more interesting conversations. Because after a while, it's like I can't think of anything else interesting to talk about. I've talked about everything I've read or done recently, and I really got nothing new. <laughs> I got nothing. I'm That's like sitting there. Uh, <laughs> and she's heard all your jokes. She's heard all your insights. You know, you've heard hers, and it's just it's boring. I don't know. That's why. That's why you want enough people around just to keep life interesting. I can sympathize with that. I was. I remember last night. Even I said to Joy, "Hey, to Georgie, hey, did I tell you the story about?" And she's, "Yeah, you did, twice." <laughs> like, so <laughs> that's the thing. You're like, "Oh, we're gonna go on this deserted island, and it's on this beautiful beach." And okay, well, you're gonna be totally bored in like a week. <laughs> After a while, it's like you'll be looking at this beautiful ocean or something, and you're like, "This is awesome," but I'm totally bored. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you can. Maybe you can go. So maybe maybe you go to some new place and and you can figure out how to like sort of get integrated in the community and make a bunch of friends. In which case, it'd be awesome. But there's always that risk. You go there and it's just like takes it takes a lot to get sort of 
into it. So let, let's cover a couple other topics. So I got a, few, a handful of things that I'd like to that I think would be fun to talk about. Okay, sure. One is the the uh, Sivers. What was the guy Sivers? What's his name? Dan? Derek Sivers was it? Derek Sivers, right? So it's Sivers.org. He wrote an uh, an article called "There's No Speed Limit," and the lessons that changed my life. I think is what was the subtitle. And he basically tells a story about how after a senior high school, he, or is, he or at some point during his senior year, he got accepted at Berkeley into their music school. Right. And I, I, I kind of didn't quite understand this, but I guess he, there was some ad in the paper that he answered about – it was like a studio music – musician like instruction or something. And he called the ad, and, the, and, the, and, the, and I guess they talked short – Briefly, and he told the guy, "Yeah, I, I, I got accepted into Berkeley School of Music." And the guy's like, "Oh yeah, I, I went there too." He's like, "I'll bet you I can teach you the first two years of arrangement in four music lessons." Right. And he's like, "He's like, really?" He's like, "Okay." He's like, "Well, if you're interested, be at my studio at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning." So he shows up there like a half hour early. Derek Service does. He shows up a half hour early. He doesn't ring the doorbell until like 8.59. <laughs> and the guy, the guy comes in front like totally like, who the hell's ringing my doorbell at 9 a.m., right? Because yeah. he's always like telling kids or whoever like, hey, I will teach you this if you really want to learn it. But none of them ever take him up on it. They're always like, oh, oh I want to do this. I want to do that. But nobody ever really wants to put in any work or do it. Right. But Derek apparently was very motivated and very excited. So Sure enough, they just start cranking through these music lessons, and, and this guy is like teaching him and quizzing him, and and after four lessons, he he knows all this about stuff about arrangement. Now I don't know anything about music, so I can't even talk more about what he was really covering. But and he ended up going, and I guess he takes placement exams, and you first get to Berkeley, and he placed out of the first two year of courses. <laughs> Wow, and he was able to take a bunch of advanced courses, do a lot more interesting stuff, and then he graduated like two and a half years and all this kind of stuff. And he's basically saying, "Look, if you're really motivated and interested, there's no speed limit. You don't have to go at the same speed everybody else does. They're making these classes and stuff at a level so that people who aren't particularly motivated can get through it fine." Yeah, and it reminded me of a story. Uh, it reminded me of what happened once with me with. Um, my my younger brother Jeff, he's about eighteen months younger than me, and he he was kind of a real wild kid, and he dropped out of high school after in the, towards the end of the tenth grade and joined the Marine Corps, and went to the Marine Corps for four years and was down in Panama, and all this stuff. And afterwards, he got out and he's like, uh, you know, went to he wanted to go to Georgia Tech. We're we're from Atlanta, and Georgia Tech is a good you know good school in the area, in the southeast. And so he said, well. He, he, but he had to take like he had to go to community college because he had to take a lot of remedial courses because he dropped out in tenth grade. And I came back, I think it was for, I think I had come back from like a Christmas vacation from college and he was saying, and he had been getting A's on all these remedial math courses. He was up to sort of like algebra two and trig, which was like two levels below calculus, right? which he was going to have to ultimately take if he was going to transfer into Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech, and he wanted to be an engineer. So he had a lot of math to, to get through. And he's like, get, but he's getting straight A's. And I said, well, that's great, Jeff, you know, that you're doing so well. And, um, you know, I was a math major, so... Um, he was asking me about stuff and he's like, yeah, you know, he's like, I'm not worried about pre-calculus. I know I can get an A in that too. He's like, but I don't know about calculus, man. He's like, that is really, I don't, I don't think I can do it. I'm like, Jeff, look, come here. I, I can teach you calculus right now. The hardest part about calculus is pre-calculus. Calculus is not that hard. I said, come here. I said, sit down with me here and I want to show you. And I swear in two and a half hours, I taught him everything from the definition of the derivative to 
limits, to the product and you know quotient and chain rule, to related rates, to um, the indefinite and definite integrals. I mean, I taught him all of the core of calculus in two and a half hours. And not only did I just like show him, I said, all right, let's look at a graph. I draw, you know, I draw like a graph, and I'd say, okay, now draw the tangent line. Obviously, we have a secant line. If we do a limit and do this, now okay, now let's. Here's a problem. Now, can you do it? And I have him do a couple problems like it. And I go, all right, let me show you the next one. And we'd go through them. And I'd quiz him, and he would draw it out graphically. So he intuitively understood it, and then he would do problems. And he was doing it perfectly. He understood it all. And I'm like, all right, you got it. That's calculus. See? Pretty hard, That's huh? That's cool. It was Fantastic. really amazing. And my mom was sitting here kind of coming back and forth because we were at my mom's you know, house. And yeah. she was just sort of amazed. And I, and I think she kind of liked the fact that her two sons were working. <laughs> You know, that I was helping him. She was like, wow, you know, it's kind of neat. And, uh, but it really showed that, you know, I, I mean, obviously there was material in a first year calculus I didn't cover, but I covered all the important parts and that you could kind of layer over it like, and go into more specific things. You know, I didn't cover integration by parts or integration by parts. So it's like parts. a flashcard session. Yeah, but he understood it. Like he could see from top to bottom how it worked. He could do the problems. He understood intuitively. He knew what an integral and you know, all the different and, and derivatives where he knew all the basic types of calculations. So then when he got to it, he wouldn't be intimidated and say, all right, I basically know how this works. And well, first, half the times it's to, it's to do with the teacher or the material that you're reading from. If, so, if someone's good at explaining something, then yeah. it's so much easier to understand um, versus someone who just doesn't know how to explain that thing well. Yeah, I, th I think it takes a couple things. It takes an interested, motivated student who's got enough intellectual a big enough intellectual engine that they can pick stuff up relatively quickly. Yeah. And in their, and they're like, I'm ready to absorb this. I want to know this. And then it takes somebody who's, who's interested in explaining it and, 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 can, and can explain it in a way to this person that it works for them. And I had a friend of mine who wanted to, this is a, you know, seven or eight years ago, he wanted to write a program in Java. He didn't know anything about programming. All he had written were like Excel macros. Yeah. And I said, I can teach you. I can teach you Java. No problem. And like a couple hours, I did like a slam, like here's an object, and these are functions, these are variables, and this is a loop, and this is a thing. And he's doing it. And then we did another follow-up a few weeks later of like, you, okay, I'm going to teach you about what a database is, but related, but, you know, tables and SQL and this and that and joins and all that stuff. And you know, he's a very bright that's guy. That's kind so. of interesting. It's like, like guitar. It's pretty easy to teach the basics of guitar very quickly, maybe a couple of mm -hmm. days or a day or whatever. But to, to then get that person to master guitar is 10,000 hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you're mastering something's different, but yeah. it's just amazing how quickly you can teach stuff, especially in one-on-one -on -one settings, yeah. if people are really interesting. And I remember, you know, the, the, this Derek Sivers was talking about this guy, Kimo, who was the, the, the music, mu the music um, instructor that taught him this stuff, this yeah. arrangement. And I was really lucky in high school because I had this professor who our teacher who is my mentor and advisor and everything and he's also my basketball coach in high school too which we had a lot of sort of uh things that we connected on and he was a physicist so he's a really interesting really interesting guy he actually wrote, wrote a book with john conway the guy who wrote the game of life you know that guy the mathematician i've heard of the, the game of life yeah i wrote they wrote a book together called the triangle book and i think it's still being published and he's a john conway's at princeton so he would take like a year off and work was up working with him at princeton and he um he actually, they mentioned John Conway and Steve Segur, his name is Steve Segur, on an episode of Numbers. You know the TV show about the mathematician, the FBI mathematician who solved yeah. problems? I'm like, they mentioned Steve Segur. That's my math teacher. <laughs> <laughs> that's Steve. <laughs> Steve, that's the guy, you know, he was, I mean, he was a really good friend of mine. I would, you know, I would, you know, 
all the time after I graduated, or even when I was in high school, grab dinner with him, and you know he was he was sort of doing. I was doing all these independent studies with him. He you know in in um, programming and Lisp and in uh, you know math and all this kind of stuff. And he would um, he would always tell me things. It's like it was like I had like my own personal like kung fu master or something. <laughs> I was teaching That's me cool. stuff. And I'm mean, really lucky to have someone like that. And it reminds me of this of this person, Kimo, who Derek Sivers was talking about. Because he told me, I remember he was saying, because he, he came up to me my, my freshman year, and this is a whole other story, but I had, um, I had been doing a lot of stuff with electronics, and I wanted to learn electronics and, uh, the, and, and programming stuff. And I had um, surpassed what the computer science teacher could teach me. And so she said, you should go talk to Steve about this. And I'm like, Steve, the basketball coach? <laughs> he's like this six foot seven guy with a beard. Like, what's that guy know about? And he's like, yeah, yeah go ask Steve. So I go, I go um, Steve, uh, Kathy told me I should ask you. I'm trying to learn this. this I think it was programming Pascal or something. And he's like, oh, you should learn fourth. So he started teaching me fourth. And he says, you know, and I start talking about all this, uh, this uh, electronic stuff that I was teaching myself. He's like, well, if you really want to understand circuits and you really need to know differential equations, this means you just you should go ahead and start teaching yourself calculus. And I'm like 15. I'm like a freshman in high school. I'm like in geometry, <laughs> right? And uh, I'm like, this guy's insane. What's he talking about? Teach myself calculus, you know? <laughs> but he pushed me, and, and I ended up doing it. You know, and I'm like, all right, I'll teach myself calculus. And I did. And I got a couple of friends of mine to do it, do it along with me. This is just such a different it. world to my world, this, all this stuff that you're talking about. And it's interesting. Uh, because you know, I left. I basically left the educational system at fifteen. Right. So I just I don't identify with anything that you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, in, it's, it's a... interesting to listen to, but it it shows how different we are. Like my yeah. my sort of path has all been about, I guess, apprenticeship. Really, I've taken an apprenticeship route, um, and just the experiential route of working with computers and developing. Um, you know, being a developer. Um, but right. I don't have any of this this stuff that you're talking about <laughs> regarding calculus and all that type of thing. Yeah, well, you know, I initially wanted to be a mathematician or physicist, and that was in high school. When that's what I thought I wanted to do and in, and in college, and I ended up not following that route. But S Steve was, um, he was, I was lucky to have a mentor. And just the story about this guy, Chemo, reminded me a lot of Steve, because he, he, he would tell me, oh, you know, just go and teach yourself calculus. Like, it was no big deal. You know? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay, I'm... You know, I'm, if I'm, I'm already ahead math, and if I my senior year, I'll take calculus. He's like, no, go ahead and do it now. And so I did, you know, but it was because of him. And he said, look, he's like, if you're motivated, he's like, you could teach yourself on a year worth of math in, in two months, six weeks to two months. He's like, you can do it. Yeah. And he was right. You can. And, you know, math is just obviously one example. You can do it in computer science or whatever if you're motivated and interested. And it just is. It's just the whole thing that there's no speed limit was very interesting article to me because it just yeah. shows that you can do amazing things and you can learn a lot if you go off and just decide to do it. And especially if you are lucky enough where you can find someone to sort of guide you through it to some degree. Yeah. And and that's that's one thing can be hard if you don't have someone to guide you through it. Sometimes it can be very intimidating when you're trying to learn something new and you just kind of get stuck and you're like, I don't know how to do this. Now with with things like Stack Overflow for programming. You know, you now have ways to get over those humps more easily than in the past. But I don't know. I, this is such a great story. It just reminded me of some of yeah. my experiences. No, fantastic. I mean, it sounds really positive, really good. So let's see. I got a couple of quick, quick ones I want to talk about um, before we uh, call it a show. 
One yeah. is uh, there's this new site called Build It With Me. Build It With Dot Me. Oh, cool. Yeah. We'll send, which we'll reminds me of stuff that you had talked about, which is the idea of like how do you kind of find other people who want to do startups or designers or developers and do work on things together. Huh. Right. And then what it is, Build It With Me. Build It With Dot Me. Um, is you go on there and you say, oh, I'm a developer or I'm a designer. I think the developers, designers might be one other type you can register yourself as. And you say, if you have an idea, you say, oh, I have an idea, but I'm open to other ideas or I'm looking to get involved in a project. And you just kind of describe your background and what you know. That is I cool. That is definitely I that, needed. I think so. I think Build It With Me is a great... It's a really cool idea. I was kind of glancing through. I was I was looking over some of the people registered, and and it's like real, you know, uh, experienced people. It wasn't like a bunch of jokers on there putting in you know crap information. I mean, these people with like 10, 15 years experience as designers or developers, or or, or maybe there are some students, but they seem to know quite a bit. And you know, I mean, that's how projects get off the ground. You find other people who are motivated and have enough skills to 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 do stuff. Just, looks like it's got a nice interface as well. I like it when sites look good. Yeah, it always helps. That always helps. Which brings me to another uh, blog I read called, um, post was called Make It Work, Make It Pretty, Make It Fast. And it was <laughs> at opportunitycloud.com. This guy wrote it. And he's had an interesting, like, he, I mean, it's a fairly short blog post, but it was kind of interesting. The guy's talking about how, like, the order in which you do things like, you know, first he's like, you know, a lot of times when you're young, you're like, I just want to make it really fast. And you're worried about making things fast, making it pretty. He's like, but really the order is important. You really just make it work. It doesn't have to yeah. be pretty or fast. Just make it work and then kind of make it nice to you, make the user experience good. And then you can work on the performance later. Don't worry about scaling or efficiency yeah. until the damn thing works or it's even like attractive enough that anyone even wants to even spend five minutes with it. Well, for example, Friendster. Like the you know a huge reason why friends to failed as as the first social network. Well, okay, it didn't fail. It's really big in 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 Asia, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know whether you remember when friends to first came out. It was cripplingly slow, cripplingly right. slow. You couldn't use it. Well, no, wasn't it the kind of thing that they wrote it in Java and they had to rewrite it in PHP for because they had speed problems with Java or something? I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, those stories are always funny because they're like. You know, they write in one language and they rewrite it in another, and it's fast. And it seems to me that you could probably write a fast website in any. There was a there was a post on Hacker News about so, I think it was something like the ten biggest fails of all time, the biggest tech fails, <laughs> and one of them was <laughs> Friendster. That would be a great one to write about, read yeah. about. I, it was like a technical fail, or like a business fail. Well, just really fail. big, really things that really didn't work that should have worked but didn't. For example. Um, like the the Zen creative, the creative Zen thing, you know, it was out there before the iPod, right? And it's just a yeah. whole bunch of things that were just like the technology that didn't work. Obviously, Beta, uh, you know, Sony Betamax was one of them. Like it should have been successful, but for whatever reason, they just screwed up the strategy. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, Friendster. I never used Friendster. It, it, it kind of. I wasn't involved in the, really in the web space at that time. I'd kind of moved on to other. I was not involved, so I wasn't paying attention to it. All right, that's a wrap. We're out.